0: Road, 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 you will never be the same. And for the full catastrophe, he didn't mean it was all bad. Oh, that I wasn't a way Don't play with me. If I invite you to the dance. To the dance with the Lord of the Dance. God didn't call America to do what she's doing in the world now. Please don't. Well, good evening and welcome to our Lenten Bible study podcast. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I am Pastor Don. And this may be an unfamiliar setting for some of you to try to do a Bible study. Now that's okay, and we're doing this this way for a reason. The reason we're doing this online and through a podcast is because we want to keep doing our Lenten Bible study, and we wish we could still do it in person. But as many of you know, this situation with the coronavirus has put us in a place where meeting together in person isn't probably the smartest idea and it's not the best decision for our community. Now the reason for this is we want to care for those in our community who may be vulnerable and we want to not take any risks about transmitting the disease even if we're not sick. So we feel that the best decision is to not meet in person but that doesn't mean we can't study the Bible together. So that's what gets us to where we are today. So today we have this recording. And in this recording, I will be discussing with you the text we've chosen for today's Bible study. Now, in the future, as we keep this going, I hope to have a few other voices in the recording with me discussing the text. But for today, it'll just be me. Now, in addition to this podcast, this recording, we also have our Google Classroom environment as well. Now, for those of you who don't know what Google Classroom is, what it is, is it's basically an online class. The same sort of thing that you might find at any college or university. In fact, in our church community, quite a number of our young people are using very similar things to do their classes while school is canceled. So I figure there's no reason we can't do the exact same thing. So in this Google Classroom, I've got the various handouts and questions for discussion and a space where we can talk about these things online, not just today, but throughout the week. So if you want to get into this Google Classroom, we would love you to be involved, to be part of the conversation. In order to get access to this Google Classroom, you will need a Gmail account, something most of us have. But if you don't, simply go to gmail.com and follow the on-screen instructions. It's actually pretty easy. Once you have a Gmail account, you can either go into the Google Classroom app on your smartphone or tablet, or you can go to classroom.google.com, and you can log in with your Gmail account there. Once you're there, you're going to want to look for class code SSCYCWS. Now, that classroom code will get you to our class. Now, of course, if this is a little too complicated for you, that's perfectly fine. You can go ahead and send an email to me directly, and I will give you a personal invitation to join the class that way. Now, in addition to these two things, we also have our ongoing Lenten devotionals, which you can find on the KUC website, or if you prefer, you can pick up a copy printed out here in the church. Now, this devotional isn't just for today's scripture readings. It actually gives you a daily scripture reading and a brief discussion, a way to meditate your way through the Lent season and think about some of the scripture passages that have to do with what we're talking about in this Lenten season. So with all of these resources, we have this podcast, we have the Google Classroom, we have the Lenten devotional, Those are the resources we have, but the most important thing that we have together is our community. So as we engage in this, I really want to encourage you to take the time to talk to people. Email or text me if you have any questions. Talk to each other whenever you can. Participate in the Google Classroom discussions. Whatever you do, don't do it alone. You're part of a community, and we love having you here. So with that being said, let's go ahead and start our online Bible study. Let's open with a word of prayer. Almighty God, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together here online in our own homes around the city and around the world. Let all of these be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, you are our rock, our redeemer, our comforter, and our friend. Amen. So first things first, we are going to begin by reading the text we've chosen today. And for today, we have a fairly short text to look at. Over the last few weeks in person, we've looked at two texts. We've looked at Jonah, chapters 3 and 4, and we've looked at a large chunk of Romans as well. Today, we're going to go for a shorter text, a specific story from the Old Testament. We will be looking at the book of Exodus We'll be looking at verses 1 through 8 in chapter 16. I'm going to go ahead and read that for you now, so you can feel free to follow along in your own Bibles or online as you see fit. It may be interesting to compare the translation you have with the one I'm using today. So feel free to read along with me, and let's listen now for the word of the Lord. Exodus chapter 16. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt! There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions." Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. So what do we do with the text once we've read it? When we try to understand a text, we're doing more than just reading A small part of the Bible text we've picked for a day in English as it is. We're gonna have to do more than that to hear what God is saying through the text. So the first thing we're going to do is try to understand how the story that we are looking at specifically is part of a larger story in that book, in this case Exodus, which is in turn a larger part of the overall story of the Old Testament, which itself is a part of the larger story of the whole Bible. This means that even though we often look at texts by themselves, we can't really understand a text just by looking at it by itself. It's part of something bigger. So, to better understand the text, we need to look at what's going on around it. What happened before it? What happened after it? Where is the story going? It's not just a snapshot. We want to look at it as part of a story in motion. Now, the second thing we want to look at as well is what's going on with the language. Now, as many of you know, but some of you might not, the Bible wasn't originally written in English. As a matter of fact, the Bible was originally written in a number of different languages. The Old Testament, which we're looking at today, was originally written in a form of ancient Hebrew, which of course itself was just the way they wrote down stories that had been oral histories for centuries before. Now these Old Testament writings have been translated into Greek and Aramaic and Latin, and eventually into English, but they've gone through translation along the way. Now many of us within the Kobe Union Church community know all too well that translation is an inexact science. There's no real way to do it perfectly. So one of the things we try to look at when we're understanding a text is what did the words originally mean? Why did we translate it into English the way we did? And what can we learn from the choices that were made there that give us a better understanding of what God is saying through the text? And of course, the last thing we try to look at are the questions we ask ourselves about how we understand the text. How have we always understood this text? And, just as importantly, how might we be wrong about it? What pieces of the story might we be missing? Of course, once that's all done, that is when we're ready to start the discussion. Of course, since we're doing this all online, you're mostly just listening to me talk, and we're not really having a discussion per se. Now, that's okay. In this podcast, in the part that you're listening to now, I'll be talking you through the background, talking about some of the questions we can ask ourselves, the thoughts we can meditate on, and some things we might be able to learn as we make our way through the text. But the real discussion between us as siblings in Christ, this discussion will happen when we see each other in church on Sunday, it'll happen through text messages, and most importantly, it will happen in our Google Classroom group. So if you haven't got on that, jump in there now so we can keep the conversation going. All right, so having talked about that, let's start looking into this text a little more in depth. So the first question we want to ask ourselves is how did the story get to where it is? Now, this story, as you know from what we're seeing, takes place with the people of God in the desert. How did they get to the desert? Well, let's look at what happens before the text. Before this text we're only just a handful of weeks away from the parting of the Red Sea. So we, at this point in the story, are barely a few weeks, maybe a month or two, out of Egypt. So the Exodus is still fairly new. The departure from Egypt, the the destruction of Pharaoh's forces in the crashing waters of the Red Sea, this has only just happened. So they've gone only a few weeks, a few days out from the Red Sea and the first thing that happened, as we see in the previous text, is that they ran out of water. Of course this is to be expected because they are wandering through the desert. And the first thing that happens is the people begin to complain. I mean you would too, right, if you didn't have any water. The people of God are upset with God. You took us out of Egypt, but sure. But what have you done for me lately, God? So God then takes them in the previous uh, chapter to some bitter, undrinkable water. And of course, they complain more. But after that, they're brought to the oasis of Elim. Now, this is an oasis that has 12 springs of clean water, 70 palm trees, and Boy, is it a nice resort, in the middle of a desert. A couple of coconut drinks with frilly umbrellas, and you're basically set for life. Of course, as God points out, this isn't a permanent stop, just a rest stop on the way, so they get moving again. And only a week or two into the journey from this oasis is where we are when we get to today's passage. So when we see today, we realize that we're in a place where we've hit some bumps and God has continued to provide already. So then we see what happens in the passage today, and we ask ourselves the question, what comes next? So in today's passage, we talk about the manna from heaven, we talk about the quail that are provided, and that all happens. And then in chapter 17, we're back into the wilderness, and we're complaining about water again wondering, is God really going to kill us? Is God really going to help us? Now, this is kind of amazing to me, because these people have seen God shower Egypt with plagues, part the Red Sea, bring them to springs of water in the desert, manna from heaven, quail in the evening, and they're still not willing to give Moses the benefit of the doubt when he says God will provide. Then there are attacks, and going on from here through Exodus, the time in the wilderness goes on for a while, and on, and on, and on. So the wilderness story is a long one, and today's passage is only just at the beginning. So before we go on, what are our takeaways from this context? Now, the first takeaway is, of course, perhaps the most honest and obvious one, but it can be a little crushing for some of us, and that's that Well, sometimes people just like to complain. I mean, people always do have a complaint. And if we're honest with ourselves, we always do have a complaint about something. I know I sure do. And those complaints may always seem rational and where and when we are. But when we make these complaints, it almost always excludes God's involvement from the process. When we say, we don't have this we're not leaving room for God to provide. When we complain, where's my water? We do so ignoring the times God has provided water, ignoring the springs in the desert. When we complain, where's my food? We do so ignoring the fact that God keeps giving us food. So this is a good example of a large common piece in human history, the fact that as humans, we're often very quick to complain. The second thing that we notice, um, you would think that the miracles that God's people had seen would be enough to convince them that God is looking out for them. As I'd said, they'd seen a lot coming out of Egypt. They'd seen springs in the desert. They'd seen manna from heaven. They'd seen quite a lot. But even having seen all of this, they still doubt. They still wonder, will God provide for us?" And the honest question is, if we're honest with ourselves, don't we always feel the same way? Don't we often disregard God's miracles when we are tired or hungry? And an honest fact around this as well is, no matter how bold God's miracles may be, the simple fact is, us humans get angry when we're hungry or thirsty or tired. Now this may seem like an utterly simple point. It may seem almost ridiculous. But when we have conflict that arises between us and God, when we start arguing with God, sometimes the best answer is to have a drink, get a bite to eat, and take a nap, and revisit the issue later. It seems like a simple thing, but we notice that pattern with the Egyptians here, or not the Egyptians, we notice this pattern with the Israelites here, that every time they get hungry or thirsty, they start arguing with God. So maybe this is something we can pay attention to ourselves. And the next point is that when God provides, God doesn't provide all of our wants and desires. God doesn't give us exactly what we want or so much more than we need, our cup rarely overflows because God isn't always a God of excess. God gives us just what we need to get by and to get us to where God calls us to next. And lastly, the most important part, in my opinion, is that God's providence here isn't the end of the story. The manna from heaven, the quails in the desert, these happen in the first weeks and months of a wilderness journey that lasts for decades. God will provide what we need in order to get through, but we still have to try to get through. We still have to walk the walk. God is calling us to walk through that desert, and we got to do it. But the important takeaway is that God will take care of us as we do it. God won't take the cup from us, but God will help us drink from it. So having looked at some of these points, let's take a minute and try to dig a little deeper. Now I've gone ahead and looked at some of the old language here in the text, and I'm going to talk to you about some of the interesting points of language in this text. Now I don't expect any of you listening to know ancient Hebrew or to understand any of that, but I've picked a few interesting points that we can think about as we read the text. and I'll try to explain them to you as best I can. So let's look at some of the language issues that pop up in this text. One of the first things we come to we find in verse 1. Now some of you may have accidentally referred to this or you may have noticed as I read it, that this is not the desert of sin, it's the desert of sin. Now that pronunciation makes a huge difference because in Hebrew, there is no similarity between sin and sin. In English, we see S-I-N, and we think that has to be sin. But in this case, Midbar Shin, the desert of Sheen, is a proper noun that has no connection to the word sin at all. Now, I know sometimes when we read this text, it seems like a cool twist of the story to think of the Israelites as wandering in a desert of sin, but that's not reflected in the text. It just happens to be a name that is similar in English but not in the original Hebrew. Another point we can look at is in verse 2. We see it say that the whole community had gathered. Now, in our different English translations, some of you may be reading these different English translations, you may may see assembly or congregation instead. Um, And there's a reason for this. In Hebrew, the term that's used here is one of a family community it has a familial tone to it that we don't find as much in english words such as community assembly or congregation of course in english there isn't a real world or a real word that means the gathering of people together all of the people who are like a family so if we're picking a word we try to get as close as we can. I think congregation is probably a better choice, because for those of us in Christ, this congregation as a family idea is something we at least understand somewhat. But the point here from the Hebrew is that we're stressing the whole community has come together. It's not just a gathering of the Hebrew leadership. It's not just all the people who happen to be around. It's a family of a city. It's people coming together as siblings, as friends, as relatives, in a way that doesn't really function in English. So that's a good one to keep in mind, too. Of course, we can't get through verse 2 without talking about the word grumbled. Now, the way that the people grumbled here seems just kind of annoyed in English. We think of people going, I'm grumbled, I'm grumpy. But the word used in Hebrew has its root in words that say to remain permanently stuck in something. The suggestion from this word here isn't just that the people are complaining, but that they're mentally and spiritually stuck in their complaining in a very real way. So an awareness of that tells us a lot more about the text. It's not just that they're grumpy, but that they're stuck in their grumpiness, rooted in their grumpiness, and maybe even a little unwilling to let it go, which of course, if we see how they keep complaining, kind of makes sense. In verse 4, we come across the word God. And in Hebrew, this is one of those instances where we're using the actual name Of the Lord. Now, this is worth discussing for some of you who may not know it. But there are a number of different names used for the Lord in the Old Testament. The most common of them, perhaps, is the word Adonai, which is a generic term that means Lord. You see this in the in the uh, the Psalms a lot. You see this in the creation story. Um, But here we get Yahweh. Y-H-V-H, which is the name of the Lord. Now, as a side note for any of you who are interested, I can tell you a little bit about why we have different names for God. And it all comes down to vowels. Now, in the ancient Hebrew language, there weren't any written vowels. The only things they wrote down were the consonant sounds of words. So when the ancient priests wrote down the name of God, they wrote down the consonant sounds, but the vowels were only communicated verbally to people. Of course, that means that the correct vowels and therefore the correct pronunciation of the name of God have been lost to time. So we don't know what vowels go along with those four consonants, Y, H, V, H. Now, what we do have is that word I mentioned a moment ago, Adonai, which is the Hebrew word for Lord. Now, this has the same number of consonants, and wouldn't you know it? We do know the vowels for that one. So, somewhere along the line, someone had the bright idea to take the vowel sounds from Adonai, A-O-I, and add them to the consonants Y-H-V-H, and that gets us Yehovah, which you may recognize as the forerunner of Yehovah. Pass that into Greek and Latin, and we get Jehovah, or Yehovah. And that is how we get these different names for the Lord. Also looking at verse 4, this is always a fun one to talk about. We get the word hine. Now, we often translate this in English as Behold. But it's worth understanding that this is honestly a more casual term in Hebrew. It wasn't meant to be over dramatic or almost explicit or powerful as we see this in English. It's not meant to be, behold. We can actually understand this as, hey, look over here, or check this out. This is cool. Also in verse 4, it's worth noting that the term here used for to rain can also mean to hail. So we think about this as saying rain bred from heaven as this kind of poetic expression. But in Hebrew, it's more like, and it fell from the sky with a thud, like hail. So it's very, very literal here. I know that takes some of the poetry away from the text, but that tells you a little more about how they were understanding the event as it happened. So that's some of the fun language points we can talk about. And as we come to the end here, let's take a little time and talk about how we understand this passage. What are some of the questions we can ask ourselves? So the first thing we can note is that in this passage, the manna from heaven isn't the only gift that God's people are given. They get manna in the morning, but they also get quail in the evening. But when we tell this story, when we think about this story, we often look at one rather than the other. Now, why is that? It isn't just us. When people have told this story for generations, we always look at the manna from heaven and we don't think about the quails. Why do you think that is? Is the mana more of a miracle than the quail? Neither were present beforehand. There wasn't anything around them until suddenly quails or suddenly mana. Why the one and not the other? Is it possibly that we can often and always, all of us, be guilty of a certain narrow-mindedness. And when we do actually recognize a miracle, we can focus on that one and ignore anything else. An interesting thought that maybe God's providence is more around us and more present even than we are willing or able to recognize. Certainly something we can think about. A last point for us to consider, and one I think that is worth wrestling with a little bit, In the time since this story was recorded and written down, there have been many attempts to explain exactly what mana is. Now, in the deserts of the region, as many commentary writers and historians know, there is a shrub, a type of bush, and this bush will leak these heavy, sweet drops, a kind of a sap, and it'll fall to the ground and make a dry, grainy crust usually during the spring and early summer months. Isn't it possible that that is what mana is? Others over time have suggested that there is actually a type of insect, a type of locust, which produces a very edible, honey-flavored, cake-like residue. And it produces this as a waste product. And sometimes these locusts will blanket whole sections of the desert during their evening or morning migrations through the area. So it's possible that mana from heaven could have been any one of these things. The question, of course, is, does a scientific explanation of the event change how you understand the story? If you know how it happens, is it any less a miracle? Personally, and in my opinion... I think our faith is much more concerned with why things happen rather than what or how it actually happens. If mana can be explained scientifically, that doesn't answer a question that's important to us. It doesn't tell us why these insects or why these bushes came to these people at this time, in this place, precisely when they were needed. So as we end our study today, I want us to consider some questions about how we can take this verse home to us today. Now these questions I've also posted to the Google Classroom so we can continue our discussion there so we can talk about these online and listen to each other and hear each other about what we're doing and why we're doing it and why we're thinking what we're thinking. We can feed off each other intellectually and spiritually and grow together in our understanding of the Bible. So again, I want to encourage you to take the time to visit our Google group and the instructions for that are in the beginning of this podcast. So here are some of the questions we can consider from today's study. As we noticed in the text, if you held on to your mana, if you tried to keep it when God said don't, It would rot and fill with worms. Today, we obviously don't get mana literally falling from heaven, but we still get gifts from God. What does it mean to us today to hold on to our mana? What are the things we are doing in our lives and in our communities that are holding on to things that we're supposed to let go, that we're supposed to use and look for more from God? In the same way, what might it mean for us as individuals, as a community, to let go of our mana instead, to use what God has given us, to use it in its fullness and hold on to no more, and then wait tomorrow to see what God will bring? What would that look like for us? In this global world as well, what can the effects beyond just us of holding on? to our mana be. When we hoard our resources, when we keep what is meant to be used, it still rots. What kind of rot do we see in the world that comes from us and others holding on to what God has given us to use? Of course, the important question is that in today's coronavirus situation, how can we consider being patient with what the Lord has given us daily? And in what ways can we share our excess? How can we make use of the mana that we're given, both for ourselves and for others? How does that apply to us in this situation here and today? And our last question to consider is this, what are the quail? Where are our quail in this situation? What are the gifts and blessings God has given us that we don't see? What are the gifts that God has given us that we don't immediately recognize? And how can we be more attentive to both the mana and the quail that the Lord has put before us? So that's all that we have for you today. Again, I want to encourage you to join in the larger conversation in our Google Classroom. I would love for you to comment on our Facebook post, and I would love to hear from each and every one of you by email or by message or whatever is convenient. And of course, to come chat with us in person when you're available and if you are in the area. I want to thank you once again for joining us for our Bible study. And please know that in this situation of fear and worry and concern for so many of us, that each and every one of you remain in our thoughts and our prayers today and tomorrow and every day. Let's close in prayer. Almighty God, we thank you for this time we have spent together. We thank you for the new technologies we're exploring as we find ways to still be present with you and with each other, even in this difficult situation. I thank you for every person who is participating in this experiment with us. I thank you for the hearts that are studying your word the minds and the spirits that are seeking you first above all else. I pray that you will lift up all of those who are suffering, all of those who are worried, all of those who are sick, and all of those who just plain don't want to be sick. Be with all of us, Lord, as we navigate our way into whatever future you set beside and before us. Lord, help us to be aware of our mana. Help us not to hold it tight, but to use what you've given us, the gifts and the resources, that you have put beside us with the Holy Spirit, and help us to be your people here in the community and in the world. We thank you, Lord Jesus, and in your almighty name we pray. Amen. Thank you, everybody. Have a great week, and it's been a pleasure spending time with you this to to oh, evening.